we're going to start this amazing journey through Exodus. Our title, and I'll explain this as we move on this morning, that's really going to be a title for today's section of Exodus 1, 1 to 7, but it's really going to be the banner that sits over the entire book of Exodus. And you saw it on the bumper at the end. He saved them for his namesake. He saved them for his namesake. Now, we're going to read Exodus 1, 1 to 7 together in just a few moments, but I got a little lengthier introduction to help us get to that place. So bear with me. We'll get to reading it. We'll do an exposition of it. And the application is going to be all the way through. Application will not be at the end. Our application will be woven throughout what we study through. As we begin our study through Exodus, it's imperative that we get an overview of what the Lord gives us in the book of Exodus. So that's what we want to do this morning in introduction. Moses wrote most of Exodus. There are places where Moses is referred to in the third person. So I hope as you read your Bible and you're reading through Exodus with us, you're going to notice those things. And it's believed that other contributors added details along the way. And in no way does this detract from Exodus being inspired, nor does it, de- or does it detract from Moses' authorship. So when Jesus quotes Exodus in Mark 7.10, and when Jesus quotes Exodus in Mark 12.26, Jesus says it was Moses who wrote it. Therefore, knowing Jesus is who he said he is, we can trust his scholarship. That if Jesus says Moses wrote it, then Moses wrote it. Exodus is a continuation of Genesis. The very first word of Exodus is vav. It's a Hebrew letter that's also a word, and it's translated as and. And in the English translations we typically use around here, vav is not translated. At least the New American Standard begins the sentence with now, and that helps you to make the connection between Genesis and Exodus explicit. The and indicates that Exodus is indeed a continuation of Moses' unified work and a continuation of the narrative of Israel as they are on a mission to enter the promised land. Now remember, Moses is writing this as they are on the brink of entering the promised land, and he's giving them instruction on who they are, who the Lord is, and what his purpose is for them. The and is going to indicate Moses' connection and unified work, and it's key that we begin there. Moses wants to leave his people with a historical narrative of who the Lord is. He wants them to know what the Lord has done, and he desperately needs them to understand who they are in relationship to the Lord. The title Exodus follows the Greek, trans, uh, the Greek tradition of naming the book based on the dominant or predominant theme. However, in Hebrew, the book's title is Shemot, and that is translated as names. And this is important. The title, Shemot, is based on the Hebrew tradition of naming a book after the first significant word in the first sentence, and that word in Exodus happens to be names. Shemot indicates that what follows is the Lord's work in saving the people who bear the names that follow. And these names take us back to Abraham, the name of the man the Lord chose as his ambassador to the nations. And the Lord intends to save Abraham and his descendants and make them his ambassadors to the nations. And Moses wants you to know these names are the ones who represent his people. There are profound gospel good news predictions 
preparations, reflections, and results all over the book of Exodus. And part of our work will be to see those glories and not miss them. And then we want to revel in the glory of the Lord Jesus for his great namesake. All scripture predicts, prepares for, reflects, and results from Christ's person and work. And this is huge. Because Jesus is who he said he is, Exodus is Christian scripture, and is useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. So, here's a little summary from Philip Graham Ryken and Kent Hughes about the book of Exodus. They said, Exodus is the mercy, is about the mercy, justice, holiness, and glory of the Almighty God, who rules history by his sovereign power, and who saves the people of his covenant. When the biblical writers recall the Exodus, they rarely mention Moses at all. Instead, they speak of the wonders of the Lord. This gives us a hint that the proper way to study Exodus is to pay constant attention to what the book is showing and telling us about the character of God. Thus, Exodus is an exercise in theology, which is simply the study of God. That will be part of our bent as we work through Exodus to see who the Lord is for his great namesake. Consequently, in Exodus, we're going to see the Lord work sovereignly in Abraham's family to save Moses, who happens to be a descendant of Abraham, from Pharaoh's attempt to impede the growth of Abraham's descendants named Israel, the name given to Jacob after he wrestled with the Lord. We'll see the Lord work sovereignly to raise Moses up in Pharaoh's household, call Moses to service, and work with Moses to lead his people. We'll see the Lord rule sovereignly over Pharaoh for his people by, listen to this, putting Pharaoh in his place. Pharaoh is no God. Pharaoh is a man under the delusional lie of the evil forces at work in heavenly places, and he will be judged for his sin and become a display for the world to see the power, majesty, and glory of the triune God of the Bible. See Romans 9 for a summary of that. We'll see the Lord harden Pharaoh's heart as just judgment because Pharaoh hardens his own heart toward the Lord through the first plagues. You're going to see the Lord win victory over Pharaoh and prove the gods of Egypt are under his authority as he passes sentence on them by defeating them. We'll see the Lord work sovereignly to save Abraham's people by distinguishing them from the Egyptians. The Lord distinguishes between his elect and the nations who are disinherited at Babel for their continued rebellion. You can see Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 and Psalm 82 for a little insight into what's happening in Genesis 10. We'll see the Lord give his people the law that would be a guardian, as Paul would call it in Galatians 3.24. You'll see the Lord give his people the law that would serve as a guardian until Jesus came so that we all could be justified by faith. We'll see how the Lord gives his people the best and most important gift of all, his very presence. Can I just say this as a side note? God tangibly, powerfully displays his presence among his people when his people just want him. What's most important in Exodus is that the Lord dwells among his people, and he is the greatest treasure of it all. If you want something other than Jesus, you might find it by the arm of your flesh, and you're going to miss Jesus. 
God tangibly displays his presence and moves among his people who want him more than anything else. Nothing he can give them, nothing they ask him for is most important. His presence is what's most important. So he is the great treasure, and it's for his namesake. So our title for these seven verses, as I've alluded to already, and it's going to be the overarching banner, is he saved them for his namesake. We get that banner over the study, not just from words that I'm making up as a summary of Exodus, but from Psalm 106. Listen to Psalm 106, verse 7 and 8. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet, listen at verse 8, he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. So with this introduction, this overview in mind, let's read Exodus 1, 1 to 7 together. So if you'll stand with me, it's going to be on the screen for you. We're going to read Exodus 1, 1 to 7. Here we go. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. So what can we observe from Exodus 1, 1 to 7? Well, I've got two major observations. And under the first one, there are going to be three sub points to help with that major observation. So the first big observation we see in verse 1 to 5, and just a side note, when you're studying historical narrative, it is not done verse to verse, it's done theme to theme, okay? So as, as, as a clue, when you're reading like New Testament letters, those are verse to verse. When you're reading like Acts, or you're reading Exodus or Genesis, it's theme to theme, it's historical narrative, so it's big chunks, which is why at times we're going to study big chunks. And so we're going to take verse 1 to 5 as a massive chunk here, and we want to pull out the big observation based on the connection that we've said is already there between Genesis and Exodus. So here's the first major point. First of two, the Lord sent Israel to Egypt for their preservation and his namesake. The Lord sent Israel to Egypt for their preservation and his namesake. Now remember what Reich and, 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 uh, and Hughes said in that little quotation, Exodus is all about the glory of the Lord and what he did to save his people. And so what we want to pull out of this is these beautiful theological reflections on the Lord, because here's what I want for you as we study Exodus. I want you to want the Lord more than you want anything else. If we're going to see a move of God inside of our church and our city, it's going to be because we want the Lord more than anything he can give us. We want the Lord more than a, a cool worship service. We want the Lord more than, more than children's ministry, which will, July 9th will be all inside. Don't forget that. It'll all be back there. We want the Lord more than student ministry. We want the Lord more than any kind of ministry. We want the Lord because he's better than life. And so for his namesake, he saves us, and we want to know him like this. So these theological reflections are huge that we might know the Lord. 
the Lord sent Israel to Egypt for their preservation in his name's sake. So you're going to have to buckle up and roll with me here, okay? Subpoint number one. Since verse one begins with and, we have to understand that Exodus is the continuation of the narrative of Genesis. And Genesis ends with this amazing account of how the Lord took Jacob and his family to Egypt in the first place for their saving and for his glory. So how did the Lord get Jacob and his family to Egypt? Remember, Exodus teaches us about the Lord. And we need to know if there's a connection between what happens at the end of Genesis and what's happening in Exodus. We need to know something about the Lord. What we read in verse 5, that Joseph was already in Egypt. What's that about? Why that statement? Well, Psalm 105, verse 16 to 19, tells us why and how Joseph was in Egypt, and thus how the Lord would get Jacob to Egypt. Listen carefully. And by the way, the psalmist wrote what they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, having the narrative of Genesis, Exodus, Viticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and Joshua, and Judges already in place. Does that make sense? And so the psalmist is writing this theological reflection, looking at what has written, what has been written in Genesis and Exodus as a commentary on it, so we don't want to miss it. When he, speaking of the Lord, summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron, until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. Don't forget, the Lord made a promise to Abraham. And he sent Joseph ahead of them to make sure that he would keep his promise to Abraham. Now, we're not told explicitly why the Lord summoned a famine on the land, just told that he did. We're also not told explicitly why the Lord wanted them to go to Egypt. Now, you can glean the answers from the text of Scripture if you're willing to dig into the Scriptures, thinking through the text, thinking through the Bible about Joseph and the Exodus and Jesus' family who would come out of Egypt and all the implications of what these texts tell us. And I'm going to give you a little insight into the rest of this subpoint number one into that and to helping you answer that question, but I'm not going to fully answer it for you because I want you to hear this very carefully. Your questions... You're not understanding and even your offense at God in the Bible is a tool of the Lord to get you to lean into him so that he might show you himself and you know him better. And if I do that for you, I'm serving as a role I was not created to serve because you're priests of the Lord. If you belong to Jesus, he gave you his Holy Spirit, you're a priest. You have the same Holy Spirit, same Bible, you're capable of the same study. And if I do it for you, I handicap you for knowing the Lord. So what the Lord wants to do is he wants you to find these questions in your soul. He wants you to be offended at him going, you're not that sovereign you can't be because it's offensive to humans. He wants you to say that because in that, as you read his word, he'll take you into what I like to call theological caves where you're going to be lost for a little while and you're not going to understand and you're going to have to hold on by faith because the Lord's bigger than you can ever imagine, more holy than you can ever imagine, more sovereign than you can ever imagine, more loving than you can ever imagine, more good than you can ever imagine, and you will not know it until you experience it. And I can't experience that for you, so I'm not going to answer it fully for you. You're going to have to do that. And by the way, it's stuff like that when all the people of God want the Lord, that's when he does revival kind of work. 
Not because one or two people stand around telling everybody else and they clap for them and give more money because of them, because they entertain people. No, no, no. He does it because the entire people of God want God more than absolutely anything. And I can't want him for you, but I can introduce you to him. That was not in the notes. Just need you to know that. Why famine? Why Egypt? We have to understand some facts from Genesis. Remember, Exodus 1-1 starts with and. It's connected to Genesis. We have to understand some facts from Genesis. The Lord has scattered the nations. He's disinherited them and placed them under evil forces as judgment. Genesis chapter 10. You want to go down to a theological cave, you can Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, Psalm 82, Genesis 6, Genesis 10. The Lord has scattered the nations. He's disinherited them and placed them under evil forces as judgment. The call of Abraham immediately after through Genesis 11 and 12, is to bear this good news, this gospel to the nations that have just just been disinherited for judgment and eventually to offer them salvation. Part of what the Lord does by sending Jacob's folks to Egypt is judge the evil forces from the fall for the evil of receiving worship from the Egyptians. He does this by overcoming their evil magic with his power through the preaching and witness of Moses and Aaron. You'll notice as we go along that everything Moses and Aaron does by the hand of the Lord, they replicate in some manner. And the Egyptians worship them for it, and the Lord is going to cut that off. These priests of Egypt's gods are going to replicate these signs and point to the Lord, or, and detract from the Lord, and they're going to receive worship from the Egyptians. And Moses and Aaron, the Lord's prophets, are going to destroy that. Also, famine would be the impetus for which the Lord chooses to send Joseph to Egypt in order to save his family. And he would get Joseph to Egypt through the horrible circumstances we read about in Genesis 37 to 50. The Lord does this even though Joseph and his family does not yet know famine is coming. The Lord won't reveal that until he has Joseph in Egypt. We learn that the Lord has deep purposes of salvation for his people. And he often does not share with them all of this in the beginning. And he intends to show us his glory often through difficult circumstances and suffering through which he puts Joseph for the salvation of his people. Don't overlook that. There will be no good insight. There will be no growth in Christ without difficulty. Joseph grows to understand the outskirts of the Lord's purpose, and he only does that on the backside of the difficulty. As Moses reminds us of Joseph's words that Moses captures in Genesis 50, 20, we read that Joseph said this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. In this... Joseph exalts the Lord's name by seeing his brother's actions through the lens of the Lord's good providential actions to turn the free acts of men done for evil for good. Remember the main point. It is the Lord who sent Israel to Egypt for their preservation and his namesake. So in Joseph's words and actions, he exalts the name of the Lord and instructs us on how to see the Lord's work redemptively by seeing that our suffering is for the ultimate good and the Lord's namesake, that is his reputation. All of these little things coming from simply recognizing the truth that the Lord is the one who is getting his people to Egypt. 
Here's sub-point number two. It's not luck that gets the whole of Abraham's descendants to Egypt. It's the providential activity of the Lord. There's no such thing as luck in the kingdom of God. It is the providential, sovereign hand of the Lord that gets them to Egypt. The Lord is skillfully at work to uphold His people and uphold the glory of His name. Skillfully at work. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His word in vain. God is His own interpreter, and He will make it plain, as the hymn writer wrote. The Lord had made a promise to Abraham that he would make him a great nation in order to bless the nations with this good news, this gospel. If the Lord defaults on his promise, listen carefully. If the Lord defaults on his promise, the serpent's accusations all the way back in Genesis 3 have some teeth to them because the Lord's word proves untrustworthy. Did he really say? Does he really mean what he says? Can the Lord actually do that? But the Lord is not going to let this happen. The Lord's word is sure, trustworthy, and we can bank upon it. The Lord for judgment and blessing summons a famine on the land, and then he orchestrates the sinful action of others to keep his word to Abraham through his grandson, Jacob. If that doesn't move your heart, I don't know if it's beating. Because if you've come to Christ and you believed in this Lord, the God of the Bible, what you have is a God that moves history to take care of his people. Famines, evil attempts of other people cannot thwart the good purposes of the Lord. He turns them all for our good. Even though Abraham has passed, his family lives on, and the Lord is going to see to his word being kept. Now this next sentence here is in italics, and I usually do that in my notes for this purpose because it's, it's a, a meaty sentence, and I'm going to read it slowly. It's a mashup of Genesis, Exodus, and Joshua in one sentence. So I can summarize Genesis, Exodus, and Joshua in one sentence. Here it is. The Lord shows that he is the God and king of all. By bringing judgment on the nations, he intends Abraham's descendants to supplant in the promised land later with Joshua, and he does it now through famine by controlling the supply of food and by turning the evil intent of sinful brothers into a means of saving his sinful brothers later. The Lord exalts his name. He does this for his name's sake by ruling sovereignly over all things, including grain and bread. Listen, if you're in Christ, you can trust the Lord. If you're in Christ, you can trust the Lord. There's no circumstance, there's no need that can stand in the way of the Lord taking care of his people. But if you're not in Christ, I want you to hear there is one you need to turn to, one who can redeem all things. You need to turn from sin, believe on the Lord Jesus, and at that moment you have the promise that he is always working for your good. Things like this in Genesis and Exodus give Romans 8.28 its power. Don't think that Paul 
is writing what he's writing in Romans 8, 28 with no knowledge of what just happened in Genesis and Exodus. It's Genesis and Exodus that give teeth to what Paul is saying when he says, and we know that in all things, the Lord God works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Paul can't say that without the knowledge of what God did to get Abraham's people to Egypt. Three Rivers Church, he will get us to what he called us for. Subpoint three, the Lord's timing is always impeccable. His timing's impeccable. This one's hard because I don't like the Lord's timing. I want the Lord to be early. I have a saying, used to tell the jolly boys, early is on time, on time is late. Meaning you need to be 10 minutes early, that's on time. If you roll in like at time, you're late. It's just, not, it's just the way it is. Some of y'all, it rubs you the wrong way because you're 10 minutes late and think you're on time. And I just say, repent and believe the gospel. That's not how that works. All right? So I'm just confessing to you, I don't think the Lord's timing is impeccable because he stresses me out. And he stresses me out because I don't trust him. It's not his fault, it's my fault because I still don't trust him. I've preached things like that to you. I preached them to myself and I still don't want to believe it. But the Lord's timing is impeccable because the word tells us it is. Verse 5 here, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Remember, the Lord made Abraham a promise, and he made a promise to make him what? A great nation. And Moses wants the people to know the Lord has kept his word, and he's trustworthy. Because they're on the banks, and they're getting ready to go over the promised land. And they've got some big challenges in front of them, and he wants to remind them the Lord's been faithful, and he will continue to be faithful. They have a promised land to conquer. And as he's writing this for his people on the cusp of conquest, they need to know the Lord is faithful, and he will see them through, and that he works on a precise timetable. The God of time keeps time, and he knows what time it is. This is particularly important as they're going to face the remnants of the Nephilim. These giants resulting from the rebellion in Genesis 6. And we already know that spies are going to bring a bad report, if you've read the story, about these large and spiritually powerful people. And yet at this point, Moses wants the people to take confidence in the Lord. We already know that sin and doubt will have to be dealt with. However, at this point, Moses is working to build up their confidence in the Lord for the challenges ahead. Moses goes to great pains to speak to the heart of the people about the Lord's faithfulness and how he speaks of the number of their descendants. If you read any commentary, you'll find that there's some debate on the number 70, whether it's an exact number or what particularly is going on with that number. If you do some counting, you'll find that 70 doesn't quite fit. There's some debate on the exact number of Jacob's people. Hear this, you don't have to do acrobatics with numbers of people in the Bible to get to the point. The Bible often uses numbers as symbolic approximations. Let me give you a little quote here from Robert Alter. He's my go-to Old Testament guy. His translation and commentary of the Hebrew Bible is gold. If you don't have that three-volume set in your library, it'd be worth some investment to go get it. Here's what Robert Alter says. 70 is fullness. Think in terms of the 70 elders of Israel, you're going to learn about later in the book of Exodus, who go up on the mountain with Moses, and they eat a meal before the Lord, which is cool as it gets. I mean, they eat with Jesus on top of a mountain with Moses. Wow. 
Think about the 70 nations scattered at Babel. And by the way, as you start reading stuff like this and you're reading the New Testament, which is why my Bible reading plan is superior to the chronological plan, because as you're reading Exodus, you'll be reading about this thing that happens also in Jesus calling out 70 disciples. There's a reason he calls out 70. And there's some translation challenges. Some say 72, but it's 70. There's a reason Jesus calls 70 disciples and sends them to all the places he himself is about to go. Think back to Babel, 70 nations scattered. Think about 70 elders of Israel. Think about 70 number of people. It's important because what the Lord is saying to us when he calls out those 70 disciples and sends them is he's about to fulfill in completion the promise he made to Abraham all the way back there. Because it's one book, one author, many scribes. It's put together like that. So 70 is a fullness. It's a large round number. It's 10 times sacred seven. And its use here indicates that Jacob, once a solitary fugitive, has grown to a grand family, the nucleus of a nation. Therefore, the timing of Joseph's slavery, the transportation to Egypt, the growth of the number of people was right on time as the Lord was moving them Forward toward his good purposes for them, often in spite of them. <laughs> Three rivers, dear Christian, take confidence that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. His timing is impeccable. Big point number two, we're almost done. This is really super short. The Lord is faithful to keep his promise to Abraham and to make him a nation that will bless all the nations of the earth. The Lord is faithful to keep his promise to Abraham to make him a great nation that will bless all the nations of the earth. We read here in verse 6 and 7, Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Be sure... It's the faithfulness of the Lord is the reason that Joseph and his brothers make it to their appointed days. Verse 7 should remind you of Genesis 1, 26 to 28. It says they were fruitful and multiplied. Remember Genesis 1, 26 to 28? It's the creation, the cultural mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. Verse 7 reminds us of that, and it should cause you to give thanks to the Lord for bringing his people through the fall and subsequent fall on all of humanity. The Lord made humans to be fruitful and multiply, and in spite of themselves, the Lord has taken a people for himself and caused them to fulfill his created purpose, and he's about to show them even more of his glory. The Lord was faithful then, and he is faithful now. So this morning, I saved my purpose to the end. My aim, my twofold aim this morning was to introduce Exodus to you and to attempt to show you the faithfulness of the Lord for his namesake. So here's the big boy, big girl application for a lot of us sitting in this room. Perhaps the past few years have been rough for you. Things didn't work out the way you dreamed them, you know? And it's been hard. You've shed tears. You've laid awake at night. And you've wondered if the Lord is faithful. Maybe you've even entertained the idea that He's not even real. 
Maybe even you've gone so far as to entertain the idea that maybe you've believed in vain. The Lord this morning through Moses is calling us to hang on, look with keen eyes at his faithfulness and trust him. And whatever you do, do not turn back. Because what's at stake is your good, my good, our good together, and his great namesake. And because we bear his name, and this is a great and powerful thing you'll find as we read through the Old Testament, as we study through Exodus, as you read through the Psalms, because we bear his name, he will not let us go because his reputation is at stake. And when you bear his name, he will not let his name fall into the dirt. He will uphold his people and see us through to the purpose for which he has called us. He is faithful then, and we have this testimony in the scriptures to know that today he will be faithful. He will see us through three rivers. And as a result, I want to call you this morning to worship. He's worthy. In spite of the circumstance, and I, and, and I said this last week, and I'm going to say it again this week, often we come into a place like this after hard weeks and hard life hits us, and we don't feel like it. Sometimes you have to start moving in a direction and start acting like some things are reality in order for them to start feeling like they are. Sometimes you come in, and, and sometimes life hasn't kicked you in the teeth yet. And you already have the feeling, and you come pumped and ready to go. And for some of us, life has kicked us in the teeth, and we don't have any more teeth. And sometimes it's just an act of willfully choosing to worship the Lord. And when we do, those are moments that sometimes the Lord brings the emotions to follow. The heart follows suit. So maybe if you don't have any teeth like me this morning, it's an opportunity to stand and give the Lord what he's due because he simply do it. Whether you feel anything off of it or not, he's due it. Because he's been faithful to you, whether you feel it or not, whether you've experienced it fully yet or not, he's been faithful. And Moses has reminded us of that. And so we want to offer him praise simply because he's worthy and simply because he is who he says he is. And by faith, offer him worship because we know that he who began a good work, Philippians 1, 6, will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. He will finish what he started. Let's pray. Lord, we ask... promises that you would fulfill them in your good time but my time is not your time and you're impeccable I'm not I want yesterday and unfortunately sometimes you want to take me through pits slavery and hunger false accusations and slander and hurt wounding to show me who you are who I am and that you're faithful to show me your glory so that there's no chance I would ever turn back. So Lord, for all those promises that we're hanging on to, fulfill them, please. Help us to hold on. Beg you for that. For our kids, for our families, for our church, for our city, for the world. Salvation, Lord, make it spring up from the ground salvation would visit our families 
holiness and righteousness would visit our families. Peace and joy would visit our families. Those things would visit our city, our state, our country, and our world. You're faithful. You promise that through Abraham, all the nations, the families of the earth will be blessed through the good news of who you are, and that's not yet been fulfilled. And so we're coming up on going to a place where there are 300 villages with no gospel witness except us and very few faithful who get there very few it's rugged and so Lord we want to pray that even in that as we go together as one fellowship represented by a few that Jesus name would be exalted and you would keep your promise to Abraham to see that there are families in that valley who call on the name of Jesus and you would show yourself to be faithful let us see a little glimpse of that please let three rivers see a little glimpse of that pray that you would visit us with tangible, tangible manifestation of your presence because we want you more than anything. And if, if we don't want you more than anything, we pray that you would change that desire in us, that we will want you more than anything else. That your great namesake would be our banner, our pursuit. And for those whose faith is failing and struggling this morning, we pray that you would lift them up, fill them with the Holy Spirit cause their faith to soar, metaphorically fill their sails with the wind of the Holy Spirit and help them to hang on today. As we sing to you, be glorified, be exalted, be lifted high.